Before we come to the Lord's table, if you will take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. title of the message this morning is Greater Than the Greatest. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. They went away. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would grant by your spirit that we would have ears to hear. May we hear and understand your word. May we see afresh the glory, the beauty of Christ. May we be drawn to him in faith afresh. Lord, every Lord's day when we come together, we recognize our need for your spirit to minister your word to our souls. We ask that you would do that for us again today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. It would be difficult not to sympathize with John the Baptist as we find him in this chapter. Israel had long been without a prophet. It had been some four centuries since God had sent word through a spokesman to the people of Israel. There had been some charismatic figures that had appeared on the scene here and there, but no genuine spokesman from God had come to the people of Israel. It had been 400 years since, and Israel knew it. God had long promised to send his servant, 
that he would send his Messiah to come and deliver his people and to establish his kingdom. And he had also promised that before he sent his Messiah to establish his kingdom, he would send a forerunner to announce his arrival. And now it had been since Malachi, some, something of 400 years since God had renewed that promise to Israel, and there had been no message from God, nor no forerunner to come to announce the coming of the kingdom The hope of the kingdom was alive. The hope of the coming Messiah was very much alive at this point in Israel's history, but there was no word from heaven. And after some four centuries of silence, suddenly this man by the name of John bursts on the scene with a message of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's called John the Baptist because he baptized a baptism of repentance, calling men and women to repent of their sins because God's kingdom had this unmistakably, uh, unmistakable moral and ethical element to it that this is for the righteous only. So he called men and women to repent of their sin. He warned of a coming judgment now that the kingdom of God was coming. The enemies of God would be destroyed. The king has come. He has his fan in his hand, that graphic language that he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. It will be a time of judgment, but it will be a time of salvation. God has come to establish his kingdom. And his ministry was enormously successful by all accounts. And there was a great excitement about John the Baptist's preaching and the message that he had. Mark tells us that the whole countryside of Judea and all of Jerusalem came out to hear him preach. It was a moment of enormous excitement all through Israel. Finally, God had spoken. He had sent this forerunner to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. By far, of course, the distinctive of John the Baptist's ministry was that he is the one who introduced Jesus. Prophets had come and gone long before John the Baptist, and they had said he's coming. The distinctive of John the Baptist is that he preached he's here. We read of it especially in John's gospel. We read of it in all of the gospel accounts, but we read of it especially in John's gospel that John's own disciples, John the Baptist's own disciples, began to be so excited about his announcement that they left John and started to follow Jesus. And other disciples were a little jealous of that, and they came to John complaining. Look, they're leaving you, they're following Jesus. And John says, that's what it's all about. That's why I'm here. I'm here to point to this one who was promised. I'm just the forerunner. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom, handing the bride to the groom. This is what it's for. John himself was excited about it, as he should be. Tells his disciples, that's why I'm here, to point to Jesus. God is about to do something big. Messiah has been identified. Remember, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he presents Jesus, the Messiah, to Israel and says in so many words, this is going to be good. 
And as you read through those accounts, you can sense something of the excitement, not only on the part of the people of Israel generally, but in John himself. Well, John continued his ministry of preaching, and like any preacher worth his salt, his message includes a denunciation of sin. Now, it doesn't matter who you are. If you have sinned against God, you have sinned against God, and that nobody important enough to have an exception to that, not even if you're king, Herod. So unlike some of evangelical spokesmen a few years ago when our president was in trouble and he simply said, well, the women just find him attractive. When Herod takes his brother's wife to be his own, John the Baptist condemns him for it. And John the Baptist finds himself in prison for it. And eventually John the Baptist will die for it. You can just imagine the thoughts going through John's mind at this time. I've announced the arrival of God's kingdom. I have presented the king. I have announced that he will save his people. I've announced that he will judge the world, that he will judge the unrighteous. And now here I am in the hands of this petty profligate king. I'm going to die. The bad guys are winning. The good guys are losing. If there was ever a time in all of history that it should be that the good guys are winning and the bad guys are losing, it should be now. But I'm in prison. Jesus is out there preaching. He's performing miracles and other things that are wonderful. But he's not doing this judgment thing. I don't see the fan and I don't see the chaff being burned. This isn't coming down like I thought it should. And you can imagine, like I say, it's difficult not to sympathize with John as he's in prison at this time with all of this great announcement and the great excitement that came around it and now he's in prison and the bad guys are winning. John had told the people that this was the time of the kingdom and that the wicked would be judged. Now it seemed to be the exact reverse. Talk about unfulfilled expectations. Good sermon title. John the Baptist, disappointed with Jesus. And so finally John sends his disciples to Jesus to seek confirmation. Some have in order to protect John a little bit, have interpreted this passage. Some of the reformers took it this way. Some of the early church fathers took it this way. In order to protect John a little bit, they've interpreted this passage as meaning that it was John's disciples who had the doubts and the questions, and so he sent them to Jesus for confirmation. It's just not quite what the passage reads, is it? Because as the passage reads, as we've read through it now already, Jesus' concern after the question is answered is to cover for John and to answer for him and show that he is not a fickle kind of a prophet. So as I say, it's very easy to understand John's problem here as he's in prison and it's difficult not to sympathize with him. And so with reassurance, Jesus provides the answer, verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. In 
And here he quotes from Isaiah 35. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Now that last part, the poor have the good news preached for them, that's from Isaiah chapter 61. Now what's interesting is that these passages that Jesus cites include not only these statements that when this Messiah will come, he will, um, the blind will receive their sight, the lame will walk, and so on. They include also a message of judgment that will come. Jesus doesn't cite that part of those verses. We'll see more of that in a little bit. And of course, for reading from this side of things, we understand when that judgment will come. But Jesus skips that part, but he cites these parts, that the lame will, will, re, will walk, the blind will receive their sight, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, the, good, the poor have the good news preached. This is enough evidence for you to see that what Isaiah has prophesied has come about. And Jesus simply presents his track record as evidence that John was right pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah and that the kingdom is coming. And so Jesus caps that off in verse 6 with this general statement, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Another theme that runs through the prophets and into the New Testament as well, this theme of stumbling over Jesus. Not quite what we expected. Stumble over. Jews sometimes in terms of the stone. The stone they, they tripped over and fell. Or this stone they cast aside as unworthy building material. This stone has become the cornerstone. And this stone that they have stumbled over will crush them. But here they've stumbled over it and Jesus says, Blessed are those who do not stumble and are not offended by me. Now, as the... Disciples of John leave. Jesus turns to the crowd now to speak concerning John. And here he speaks in order to clear John the Baptist of any ill thoughts that some may have of him. Beginning with verse 7 again. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, saying, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did then? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That is, what did you go out to see? Somebody is fickle, shaking, running with the wind of the time. Somebody wets his finger, puts it up to the breeze, and that's what he... He's not like that. Did you expect to see somebody effeminate? This is not at all what you went out to see. You went out to see someone who is a prophet. Verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. But I tell you, he's more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And here Jesus picks up a theme that's in Malachi and in Isaiah, that this forerunner will come. That is to say, John is not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet, and he's more than a prophet in this. He himself is the subject of prophecy. The old prophet said he would come. He's at least got that one up on all the rest. And so he's questioning. John is questioning because he 
misunderstands the mission of Jesus, as we will see. But then Jesus says something that is just astonishing. He's more than a prophet. He's the subject of prophecy. And verse 11, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, you might have been thinking ill of John because he wavered a little bit. I'm telling you, there's been no one born greater than John. Now, that's an astonishing statement. Greater than Enoch. John is greater than Noah. John is greater than Abraham. John is greater than Moses. John is greater than Samuel. Greater than Elijah. Greater than the great prophet Isaiah. Greater than Jeremiah. Even greater than great King David. The greatest man, the most remarkable person ever born, Jesus says, is this man, John. Now, To follow Jesus' point here, and this is critical to the whole passage, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand his criterion involved. What what is the factor involved that makes John the greatest of all? What is it that made John the greatest man who has ever been born? The answer, of course, is that he is the forerunner who was announced. Now, you have to get this. John the Baptist was greater than anyone else because although there had been many great ones before who had announced Jesus, John actually announced his arrival. John is the one who actually introduced Jesus to Israel and to the world. What makes John great? Answer, he introduced Jesus. Now, that's astonishing. We're going to see more of that as we go along. But what's astonishing about it is not only what it says about John, but what it says about Jesus. It begins to settle in gradually that when you realize Jesus here is saying something about his own self-assessment. He is talking about John's greatness, And suddenly now he's speaking of his own greatness. What makes John the greatest man who ever lived is he introduced me. Amazing. Jesus is not done yet. He pushes further. Verse 11. Truly I say to you among those born of women there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet there is one, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What in the world? Are you greater than John the Baptist? Did you wake up this morning thinking, I'm greater than John the Baptist? (laughs) What in the world is he talking about? Well, I think to understand it, we have to continue to understand what is the point that made John great. 
he bore witness to Jesus. It was the clarity of witness he gave of Jesus that made him the greatest of all. Now, if that's the axis on which this turns, if that's the the turning point here, if that's what makes John great, what does that say about the rest of us on this side of things? John tripped all over this problem of judgment and when it's coming and and why he's in prison and the suffering and the persecution. He didn't see the cross. He didn't see the empty tomb. He didn't see Pentecost. He didn't see the birth of the church. He didn't see the, the ascension. He didn't see the second coming. The least in the kingdom of heaven. The least of us. The person who's been saved five minutes makes short use of all that, right? Yeah, we, we may know all the details, but we understand. He came, he died for sin, he bore our curse, he rose from the dead, he'll come again in judgment, and it'll all work out in that. In, in, we make short use of all of that. Jesus says what made John great is that more than anyone else before him, he gave clear witness of me. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, Because though they are the least in the kingdom of heaven, they can give even clearer witness to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need this focus. We have all kinds of reasons why we think we're great. Our bank account, well that's not me, but it might be you. Our bank account, our, our strength, our athletic abilities good looks, or standing in the community, standing in the church, our talents, our gifts, our family, these things make us great. Jesus says here very plainly that what makes a person great is the clear witness he gives of him. True greatness is found not only in association with Jesus, but true greatness is found in bearing witness to him. Here, Jesus says, you find your worth in bearing witness to me. Now, on the face of it, Jesus is speaking of John's greatness, and he's speaking of our greatness, And yet, as I say, subtly, it gradually sinks in that Jesus is not simply speaking of John's greatness and our greatness. He's speaking of his own greatness. Because all other greatness is great only by association with him and the witness born to him. Again, it's just astonishing. Who does he think he is? You imagine standing there hearing this. You're hearing this preacher, this prophet, and suddenly he says, the greatest man who ever lived was this man here because he introduced me. And these other people coming afterwards, they're going to be greater than him because they know more about me. Imagine, I come to the pulpit some Sunday morning, And I say, the greatest man who has ever lived is Pastor Boyd Personet because he introduced me. (laughs) And you're going to say, I knew it. 
Pastor Fred has slipped a cog. <laughs> He's nuts. He's crazy. Does he really think that? Or you'd say, worse, Pastor Fred is a complete fraud. He's in this for himself. Who talks like that? You see then how Jesus pushes that point. And Matthew, in recording it, pushes that point. When you see Jesus talking like this, you're pushed into a corner and you've got to render judgment. Who is this man? Does he have a right to talk like that? Jesus' whole point in pushing this question and Matthew's purpose in recording it for us is to push us to to render judgment concerning Jesus. Either Jesus is a lying, deceiving fraud, or he's nuts, or he really is the greatest. So Jesus speaks of John's greatness, he speaks of our greatness, and somehow in it all, the whole point of it is his own greatness. Now what's interesting here is that this is not unique in Matthew's gospel. We find this at the heart now of chapter 11. But I want you to think back through how Matthew presents Jesus, and you'll see that this is the point sustained all through Matthew's gospel. How does Matthew start his gospel? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. It's finally come, the great one, the king is here. We get into chapter 2. And we have great men, kings of the east, coming to worship him. And you read over and over again that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. And this happened, that it might be fulfilled. All through Jesus' infancy narrow, that it might be fulfilled, what Isaiah said. That it might be fulfilled, what Micah said. That it might be fulfilled, what Jeremiah said. That it might be fulfilled, what Hosea said. Over and again, pointing out Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Chapter 3. We have the baptism of Jesus, and you have the voice from heaven, God himself giving his stamp of approval. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We find him in chapter 4, with authority even over Satan. Satan's best attempts don't work against this one. We find him preaching in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and after he's all done, crowd is astounded by it. What authority this man has to say, you've heard it said, and quote Moses, but I say, it's astounding the authority this man has. And then we get into chapters 8 and 9, we have those one after another, these miracle stories about Jesus, where he exercises his authority over every possible realm. He heals the sick. He heals all kinds of diseases. He heals the blind. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He even exercises authority over the wind and the water. By a sheer act of will, with a simple word, the dead are raised. The storm stops. Sight is restored. The deaf hear. 
the lame walk, with a sheer word. And you get through it all. Who is this man? What kind of authority is this over every possible realm? In fact, we find it pressed in exactly those terms. In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus heals that paralytic, you remember what he says first. Before he says, take up your bed and walk, he says, your sins be forgiven. And everybody clam, who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. Yeah, that's right, Jesus says. But just so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, take up your bed and walk. We find him in chapter 10, sending his disciples on their maiden voyage, their, their first mission enterprise. Sends them to the lost sheep of Israel. Go out and preach. And then he warns them for the long range. You're going to be hauled before authorities and kings. Family's going to turn against you. You'll be persecuted. Some of you will be even put to death. You're going to endure all kinds of hardship, but it's okay because it's for my sake. Imagine that. Go out and suffer but it's okay, it's, it's for me. We find him here in chapter 11. He drives that point in reference to John the Baptist, that he is the greatest. Later here in chapter 11, we could see as well that Jesus denounces the cities that rejected him. And then with a, an astonishing kind of a, authoritative pronouncement as though he knows who will suffer what in eternal punishment says it'll be better off for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you because you have seen me and you have heard me preach and you have seen my miracles and you will be worse off in eternal punishment than Sodom and Gomorrah would be and then he goes further No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and he to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He has exclusive, exhaustive knowledge of God and no one else can know God except those to whom he gives the right. We get to chapter 12. Jesus makes other astounding kind of claims. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than David, greater than Solomon. Find him in chapter 13, as we read this morning earlier. Presuming to know how God's kingdom is going to play out. There's going to be this mystery aspect of the kingdom, this, this unseen part where there's a gradual growth. We didn't get to this part of the reading this morning. We'll see later, uh, next week in our reading that later in the chapter, Jesus presumes to say that at the end of this age, at the culmination of God's kingdom, he, Jesus, he will send his angels to divide the sheep and the goats, the wicked, and send them off into eternal punishment. Who is this? The angels of God are his to send On and on it goes. He inaugurates the kingdom of God. He sends his angels. His angels gather and his angels divide and he judges. 
You get through all of Matthew's gospel and you see this point sustained and repeated over and over and over. You just have to ask yourself, who is this man who claims that human greatness is determined by the knowledge of him? Who is this man who claims that eternal judgment is meted out in degrees according to your exposure to him? Who is this man who claims authority, and not only claims, but exercises authority over every possible realm? over disease and sickness, over blindness and deafness, over death, over the wind, over the waves. He speaks and they all obey. He casts out demons. Who is this man who claims and exercises this kind of authority? Who is this man who claims not only exclusive but exhaustive knowledge of God? And who is this man who claims to be the only way to God, the only one who can give the knowledge of God? The one who claims that he can give rest and peace with God. You have to see that Matthew's purpose in recording all of this through his gospel. And in fact Jesus' point in proclaiming all of this. Is to confront us with the unique greatness of Jesus. He is very simply the world's only But even then, we're not done. We can't isolate this theme of greatness, the greatness of Jesus, apart from the whole story. Matthew doesn't write his gospel and say simply, he's great. Look, he's great here, he's great in this, he's great in this, he's great in this, and then stop. This is all part of a narrative. And it progresses on. In amazing ways. And he shows Jesus' authority in this realm, in teaching. He shows his authority over every possible realm. Demonstrates his greatness in amazing ways. And then there's that twist. He's under arrest. And he's whipped. He's scourged. He's put on a cross. And he's killed. Somehow you wonder, how in the world did we get here? But somehow, it's interesting how Matthew weaves that in as well. That we come to the passion narratives of Jesus' arrest and his whipping and his beating and his crucifixion. and all. In, the, in that, there's a little cluster of this theme coming up again of his kingship. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And we keep reading... And he rises from the dead, and at the end of the story, he says, All authority has been given to me, and in heaven and on earth. Go out and bring all the nations in submission to me. All of a sudden, it makes sense. It is on the cross that his kingship is established. There he stands in the place of his people and bearing their sin, rescuing them from the tyranny and the kingdom of Satan and bringing them into God's kingdom. And having borne their curse, he rises from the dead, having conquered sin and death. 
and he establishes the kingdom of God. He is the promised king. He is the only one that God has ever sent. And in fact, he is God come to our rescue. And in fact, that message of judgment that John preached, yeah, that's true too. At the end of the age, Jesus said it himself, he will come back. He will return and he'll separate the sheep from the goats the wicked will be cast into eternal torment in hell created for the devil and his angels. We just have to see then that as Jesus pushes this theme of his unique greatness, we are forced to decide. We're forced to render judgment about Jesus. And according to him, our whole eternal destiny hangs on our response to Jesus. True greatness belongs only to him. All human greatness is found only in response and in relation to him. If you would be saved, you must come to him, as he says, as a helpless baby to receive from him what only he can do. Not just Matthew, but all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have this one simple primary focus and function to introduce Jesus Christ, to present him in such a way that we are impressed. Having been impressed with his greatness, We bow before him and trust him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Matthew has this evangelistic goal. The assumption is you need Jesus. The declaration is he is uniquely suited to be your savior. This is what Jesus came into the world to say. This is what Christianity has come into the world to say. Jesus Christ is the greatest who has ever lived. He is the one who is king over all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him because he is the one who has established himself as the world's only redeemer. He is the one to whom you will be accountable. He is the one you desperately need, whether you realize it yet or not. He is the world's only hope. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Our hearts leap each time we are reminded of him. As we have sung of him this morning, as we have seen him in the pages of scripture, our hearts are filled with thankfulness for all that he is and all that he is to us. We thank you, Father, for sending your only son
we may be saved. Lord, we pray that you would capture the hearts of every one of us here today. Give us a a new and a fresh faith in him for those who have never bowed the knee to him. Father, may they see his unique glory and greatness and their desperate need of him. We pray for his sake. Amen.